to use this literal roadcaster. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Because I live with Jake, and, and so Andrews would come to my place to record. Gotcha. And drink out of this Mets cup, actually. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I would always go for this. Oh, wow. Must it had dust in it. <laughs> and then there's a third, uh, what's the third guy's name? Um, Alex. He actually left recently. Oh, no. Yeah, so it's just the, the two of us. Gotcha. Which is, it's... Yeah, it's not quite the same without him, but... It's less wacky. <laughs> <laughs> he does have, like, yeah, a comics voice. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, Alex Pataki, right, right. All right, but we're starting a new podcast now. It's called And an And. So shout out to all the Dursling's and Fandies out there. I'm Andy. Anders Lee, are we recording? Yeah. Oh, wow, okay, cool. And Welcome to the show. And this is an Antifada PDA crossover show where we bring you news from inside the Beltway. <laughs> this week, we're talking to Garrison Lovely. Hi. Introduce yourself, Garrison. Hi, uh, I'm a freelance journalist, a uh, friend of you guys, live, live here in Brooklyn. Um, the Beltway. In the Beltway, that's right, yeah. Uh, I have been writing freelance for about five years, covering lots of stuff. I try to find things that aren't being written about or an angle on something a lot of people are talking about and go deep and uh, write, write a piece that's too long for anyone to really finish it. Um, and I guess we're here to talk about McKinsey and whatever else today. Well, yeah, so you don't, I don't want to confuse people. You don't, yeah. You, we're not going to talk about Washington, D.C. <laughs> we are related. Or Queen, we're in Queens right but now, right? But when you worked for McKinsey, it was in Washington, D.C. Uh, I was living in Philadelphia, but I was in D.C. for part of okay. my time. Oh, so damn. we will be talking about the belt. That's true. See, this is, okay, so side note, but I think this is what McKinsey should be working on, is a train that, I've been obsessed with this idea recently. Yeah. Train connecting, I mean, they have a train that connects it, but it's slow. If they had a fast one. DC to New York in an hour, Philly, you know, yeah. half that for yeah. each of them. That could be that could be huge. That could be what McKinsey's project is. But it's, instead, it, they're doing bad stuff. Yeah, it's true. I think they did something to make the TSA lines better or something. I don't know. My my girlfriend's like purse almost got eaten by the the new TSA in Jacksonville. Uh, yeah, the they like it's like automated, and so the the bins go down. And like, they installed teeth. They get, <laughs> <laughs> the bins get like sucked in, and like if you don't grab your stuff out of them in time, it can just get Jesus. security yeah. theater dentata. Yeah, <laughs> and and the the X-ray machines had like purple LEDs on them, and were like tubular and looked like very futuristic. Oh my um, god! Yeah, I I don't know if McKinsey was responsible for this. I just know they apparently were trying to unfuck the TSA. So I guess not everything McKinsey does is good. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, so you recently revealed yourself as the shadowy whistleblower behind a 2019 current affairs piece, a tell-all about your time working for McKinsey, specifically uh, assignment with ICE. Yeah, I, so I didn't name clients in that piece um, because that was just like so ingrained in me, like don't name clients. I mm. tried to keep myself anonymous, but I did talk about a federal client I was working for, which which was ICE, and I revealed myself to be the author of that piece subsequently and then wrote in detail about uh, my clients for the nation. And I think that's the first time anybody from McKinsey has like talked about specific projects named clients because um, mm. there's such a intense veil of secrecy around it. Like Pete Buttigieg was asked about his clients and he's like, oh, I'm just not allowed to say who right. my clients are. And maybe he signed a different NDA than I did, but mm. actually I looked at my NDA quite closely for all the stuff I was doing. And it says stuff about trade secrets, but there's nothing about like, 
not naming your clients. So, so he was just kind of bullshitting, I think. Uh, is it uh, like a cultural thing on some level? It's just like, I don't even need this because everybody's just so... Well, they do ing- say it, but it okay. is like, yeah, very intense. Like, so Boston Consulting Group, which is like basically the same as McKinsey, uh-huh. at the end of their training, apparently, they'll like show all the projects that everybody has, like the person's name and the like client logo that they'll be working on. And there's just like a different culture of like, it's not as secret. McKinsey, mm-hmm. it's like, you're not even supposed to say who you're working for to other people at McKinsey. Damn. And people broke this all the time because it's just kind of impractical and like you're in the, you know, circle of trust or whatever. Um, but yeah, they really took it more seriously than anyone else. So it's kind of like eyes wide shut for consulting. <laughs> Everybody has their own little siloed off yeah. thing and you don't converse about each other's deals. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the idea is like you could be working for competitors that somebody like, okay, you know, you're working for, um, one big pharma company and somebody else is working for Johnson and Johnson. And like, yeah. uh, you're talking about your work and like, you could be spilling secrets about, you know, something relevant to them. Right. Uh, I, I feel like we should back up for a second. So McKinsey was founded like about a hundred, around a hundred years ago. Yeah. It was not the first consulting firm, but it was kind of the first of its type. Yeah. Can you tell us about, uh, what it represents within American capitalism and how its trajectory may have changed over the past century. Totally. So I think it was founded in 1926 by this guy, James O. McKinsey, who was an accounting professor, I believe, at University of Chicago. And the shit was like, we're going to bring science to business and management. Uh And we're going to like look at your data and your, your numbers and like do statistics and find out like the best ways to, you know, improve your business. And this was like pretty successful uh, but this guy, Marvin Bauer, was uh, one of the later leaders of the firm. And he kind of like turned McKinsey into a profession, um, mm. like the management consulting profession is largely attributed to this guy. Marvin Bauer, who had, I think, a law degree and a business degree from Harvard. And he made consulting from like this thing that anybody could kind of go and do into something that had the um, kind of feel of like a white shoe law firm. Mm. And you have like these norms around how you talk to clients and like confidentiality and like the level of, you know, standards that you might expect. And this was just like wildly successful. And one of the big things that McKinsey did early was hire young people who didn't really have experience. So they would go to like Harvard Business School and take like the Baker scholars, like the top 10% of the class, give them a job. And the idea was like, we can train smart young people who don't have experience in the ways of doing business pair them with like more experienced people and then we can advise big companies or whatever on ways to increase their market share, bring down their costs or whatever it might be. Um, And this I think was one of the biggest things that led to young people moving from like going into public interest kind of jobs and like going straight for these like super prestigious professional service jobs. Um, Like if you look at Harvard, the students go to like finance and consulting and like at disproportionately above other careers. And McKinsey was like a, a real pathbreaker in this. Mm. Yeah, it kind of sounds like the Rand Corporation almost, like a, a sort of a similar uh, process, what they what they do. But uh, oh, what are some of the projects that they've, you know, because we're familiar with, uh, you know, from, from your piece, uh, Rikers, Ice, we know about the, a little bit, which I want to ask you about too, is the the company that was fixing bread prices that, right. that Mayor P worked for. But what are some of the other things over the past few decades that you know, people may not be familiar with, stuff they were involved with? Yeah, I mean, it's like they've worked for basically every big company and uh-huh. government in the world. Um, it's like 90% of the Fortune 500 or something like that. 
and we don't know the vast majority of the work they were doing. Wow. Um, most of it, I would say, is like kind of boring. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it matters, right? Like it's generally making companies like more profit seeking and, you know, standardizing business practices across industries and across companies within an, within an industry. But some of the famous things, um, one of the McKinsey partners back in the 50s, this guy, Arch Patton, he looked at um, wage information and noticed that uh, workers were getting paid at a faster rate. Their, their wages were going up at a faster rate than executives after World War II. Uh-oh. And he was like, oh no, this is crazy. Management, did you know this? And they're like, what the hell? Um, <laughs> and so he started the practice of executive compensation consulting. Ah. And at the time that he noticed this, like the ratio between CEO pay and like average worker pay was like in the double digits or something. It might've been like 20 or 50. It was something like that. And since then, it's gone up to like the hundreds to one. Um, wow. And when he was asked about how he felt about this work, he just said guilty. Um, so that's like a famous example of McKinsey's work. They apparently helped create the barcode, the chief of staff position for Eisenhower's administration, I think. So they have some like, Whoa. yeah, big things under their belt. Oh um, but they were also involved with like Enron. Uh, Enron's Jeff Skilling, the CEO, um, was a McKinsey alum. Uh-huh. And McKinsey was like very, very enmeshed in Enron right up until it collapsed. And because they're so secretive and because they're not like on the hook in the way that like an accounting firm is, Arthur Anderson was their accountants at Enron. And like, I think they basically went bankrupt as a result of Enron going down. And McKinsey got away with it. There was like almost no repercussion for for them. Yeah, one of, one of the details in the article, or one of the articles was that uh, the the way that you produce like PowerPoint slides, for example, is uh, like on the company's uh, style. Yeah. So if even if anything leaks, nothing is traceable back to McKinsey. So McKinsey is able to brag about the, you know, the good things that they've done or the effective things that they've done. But anything that they've failed at or anything that's gone horribly wrong, they don't have to own up to, right? Totally. Yeah, yeah. I think a, a Until big, now. That's right. Uh, a big decision they made early in their career, in their life, was they're not going to take credit for their work explicitly, but they're also not going to take blame for it. Mm. Um, and the thing is, like, they can still kind of take credit, right? If you do well at a project, you can go to some other prospective client and be like, we served a top three commercial bank doing... M&A and whatever and like it had these results and you what's, can like sorry what's M&A uh, sorry mergers and acquisitions okay. I please gotcha. stop me if I'm being too jargony um, no, that's but this is just me. how people talk about it yeah. and they'll like they'll just anonymize not mature adult of video games they <laughs> maybe they did invent that too yeah. they're everywhere yeah. they, they're like designed internment camps and also granola it yeah, seems who, like they're um, and so yeah like they'll just anonymize the the work and the, they'll claim claim credits for the wins um, but yeah, like the way you can tell a McKinsey slide, if you see the document, it's like all the font is the same size on the page. The headline will be like a full sentence. All the charts will be like really boring. And like there's specific like waterfall charts that like you can just, if you've worked there, you'll just notice right away. And you'll see these like freedom of information requests for like ice. And it will all be like on the ice, you know, letterhead, basically like the ice PowerPoint format. Um, but like the McKinsey fingerprints are there if you know what to look for. Mm. So when Mayor Pete came to you and said, you have to work for Rikers and then you got your next assignment working for ICE, what yeah. was your reaction? I, I was like, well, Pete, I, I'm just following in your footsteps. I just aspire to be like you one day. <laughs> um, no, we never overlapped. Um, I uh, I think I had like 
a similar kind of, I don't know. I, I was like uh, a kind of striver. The cat has <laughs> asthma. Don't worry about it. Okay. He's, he's not going to puke on you. <laughs> oh, um, I think like he's 17. Oh, adult years. Uh, and cat in yeah in, oh my God. in okay. year years. Oh, um, <laughs> sorry. This cat is just like I'm just gonna put the mic kind of heaving on Andrew's lap. <laughs> <laughs> this is important context yeah. for the listener at home. Um, yeah, I I think uh, I was like naive uh, and and thought that like you know McKinsey sells you on like you can do a prestigious job with smart people that pays you well and also like improve the world at the same time. And right. like, not like claiming that every project is, you know, super uh, altruistic and, and like helping people, but they will highlight any project they do that could like plausibly be seen as like helping somebody and really emphasize those in like their recruiting materials. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go work for like government clients at McKinsey, the, the Rikers project where they were trying to reduce uh, violence in, Rikers Island um, was pitched to me as a recruit um, because I had been doing prison reform work and like prison education work in, in college. And uh, it was like, wow, you know, Goldman Sachs, Google, like they're not doing stuff like this. This is actually pretty interesting. Um, and I was able to like get on that project. And I, I figured like I could carve a path there where I was working for, you know, public sector clients and, and learning how those things worked. Um, while still working with like, you know, really sharp people who would teach me a lot about, you know, business and the world and whatever. And then I could go off and do something else um, that actually helped people more down the line. Um, and yeah, I think it did end up helping me, but in like a very different way. It was yeah. just a crash course in like capitalism. Well, so you went to Cornell, yeah. right? The Cornell Cardinals. What are they? Uh, it's the Big Red. Is the, the Big mascot. Red. It doesn't really make Isn't sense. Isn't that Stanford's thing? Anyway. They're the tree, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, but so... When when you graduate at, a, at like an Ivy League institution, uh, it seems like there's. I mean, I guess we, I feel kind of left out. We have the Andy and I have the same alma mater, the new school when we graduated. Oh, I don't cool. think there was a career day. The closest thing was like come to our grad school and suck more money into that. Uh, <laughs> you know, and if you if you graduate and you you want to like change the world, as a lot of us do, uh, I, I kind of relate because like there's a lot of limited options. It feels like you can you, you know. I guess when I graduated, it was like you could go off and work for the working families party, I guess, if you want to feel kind of icky, or you can go off and fight for the Kurds. That's like, those are the two <laughs> fucking poles. Like, there's, it's hard to figure out what to do, Yeah. Uh, but it sounds like sort of a similar, but a, a, at least a larger suite of options. Um, but what are you thinking there when, you, when you're graduating and you're looking out at, like, how do I change the world? Uh, what are what are sort of the things, that, the trajectories that present themselves to you coming out of the Ivy League? Yeah, I mean, consulting, uh, as, as I mentioned, is like one of the big ones. Uh -huh. um, McKinsey actually didn't recruit at Cornell because Cornell was like not elite enough of a school. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Snubbed. Yeah, yeah. We're also far away. Like you have to send consultants to the school and like getting people to like want to go to Ithaca in the winter. Um, you know, it's, Ooh, it's, it's a pain yeah. in the ass to get there. Um, but uh, yeah, I, uh, consulting, finance and tech are like the dominant players. So like Goldman Sachs and Google are the biggest employers, I think, of Cornell graduates um but a lot of people go to consulting like you know mckinsey accenture deloitte like whatever um and a couple I think, of them became podcasters <laughs> <laughs> that's right um yeah and, and i think it's like a lot of the people who go to work at a place like mckinsey come from like very privileged backgrounds their parents went to good schools as well they went to a good school 
or like an elite school and they have to, they feel like they have to go get a job that is like something their parents can brag to their friends about. Mm. And uh, if they're like a bit more altruistic and a bit more like impact oriented, they might work at a consulting firm rather than like Goldman Sachs because like Goldman Sachs, like they're not really selling like you can improve the world, like do well by doing good. They're yeah. like, we're sharks. You can be sharks, you know, come be a shark with us. And McKinsey's like really selling something different. And I think it's like super, I mean, when I tweeted about the, the, the nation story, a lot of the negative response was like, you were a rube, you were naive to think that you could ever do, do good at a place like this. Um, and like, I think to think it was the best possible thing I could do for the world would probably have not been right. But, um, yeah, to your point, there's just like not an obvious like yeah. pathway that like kind of meets a bunch of different requirements at the same time. Um, and, you know, I, I knew lots of people who did like social justice stuff and then went to work for like a big corporation because it's like they had to make money and like, uh -huh. you know, nonprofits don't pay very well and it's hard to get a job in them. And like, I don't know, um, it's it's the other thing is people will go to a place like McKinsey and expect to be there for two years. And then they'll go and do whatever afterwards. Yeah. It's like the Peace Corps for like, you know, aspiring titans of industry slash like nonprofit executives. Or politicians. Politicians. Yeah. yeah, whatever. And the reality is like, it is quite good for that. I think the, the problem is that a lot of people like go with those expectations and then they get like the golden handcuffs. They, they get used to the lifestyle and the compensation and working with other people who have like super elite backgrounds. And when the time comes to go take like a pay cut and like make like a third as much money or something, um, they just won't actually do that. Mm. Like I now make, you know, maybe 10% as much money as like I could have made uh, if I had just stayed in like the private sector on like a pretty default path of going to like private equity or working in tech. And, you know, I'm satisfied with my career and I like my life a lot more than I did when I was at McKinsey. But like the person who's now making, you know, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year, they've like they can't go back. They can't go to making like fifty thousand dollars a year at a nonprofit mm. or working as a journalist, like without a lot of things changing. Yeah. So if but if you stay at McKinsey, that that two year period, is that like a relatively low amount of, of money compared to what people usually end up doing? Like is is there a, a career path within staying in McKinsey? Yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah. I mean the the path is like analysts, engagement manager okay associate partner, partner, senior partner. And it's like democratic party operative. <laughs> That's right. CIA. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like, I think a, a partner will make like close to a million dollars in their first year. Um, and so if you get a job as an analyst at 22, it like the fastest path to partner is something like six or seven years. And like you could, you know, before you're 30 be making like close to a million dollars a year. Wow. Um, so it, it's a ton of money. But if you leave for private equity after working at McKinsey for two or three years, you could be making even more money than uh -huh. that. So it's it's like it's all just kind of ludicrous amounts that like yeah. I don't think anyone really needs to make. Um, but yeah, the people who stay are kind of like almost middle of the road in terms of how much money you make. And there was sort of an impression that like the people who stay are not the best and they're not the worst. They're just kind of like the middle of the pack. Mm. Like the smartest people go off and do something else. Um, okay. And then they're like least competent people flame out or something um, mid kinsey yeah <laughs> partners so, so you say in the nation article i think he this line was in um 
maybe Jacobin as well, but you, you like what, what you try to do by blowing the whistle or describing your time at McKinsey was that you want the full de-McKinseyfication of society and that when McKinsey is on your resume, it's now a, a source of shame. And I think maybe we're a ways off from that, but yeah. definitely the first time I heard of McKinsey was when uh, Mayo, Mayo Pete was running for president and everyone was sending him rat emojis and trying to delve deep into who this guy was. Um, and so that, along with what you wrote in 2019, uh, has led to more scrutiny of their operation. Do you think that's affected them at all? Yeah, I mean, this is the really tragic thing about it. Um, they basically just need two things to succeed. They need to have their clients keep hiring them and they need to keep hiring uh, top graduates from elite universities. And I have a quote in the Nation article, it's an interview with the then managing director of McKinsey saying all the bad press has led to very, very, very few clients leaving. Um, and they had their best recruiting year ever. And they're a private partnership, so they can't even get like bought out by an activist investor and like forced to change. And this guy, Kevin Sneeder, who was the managing director, like when a lot of the worst press came out, a lot of it in the New York Times and ProPublica, uh, they implemented some like, I think, good but like meager reforms. And he settled this opioid case for like $600 million that basically just came out of senior partner compensation. And since like 1976, I believe, every managing director at McKinsey was elected to a second term uh, by the senior partners because they do like a hmm. voting thing. And Kevin Sneeder was not elected to a second Ooh. term. And so I think there was just like some effort to reform. Um, it was not actually necessary to keep their core business doing well. And then the senior partners who their compensation is affected if they're taking on fewer clients because they have stricter rules about who they work for. And if they're settling opioid you know, lawsuits for half a billion dollars, like that's like less money for you to take home. And senior partners at McKinsey are like not super altruistic people by and large. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I think that like the guy they replaced him with was the right-hand man for this guy, Dominic Barton, who presided over like the grow at all costs McKinsey that led to all the bad press. And he was like head of their bankrupting practice, bankruptcy practice, I believe. And they were sued for like doing all kinds of shenanigans. Um, so basically the guy who's running McKinsey now is like a return to form. And yeah, so it's been like, I don't think it's done very much. Um, Are you talking about the, the, how the Sacklers got off, you know, having their company go bankrupt, but their, their fortune was protected through like the third party non-consent agreement thing? Is that, you're talking about something different. So, so the opioid settlement that McKinsey paid was related to um, the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma. Um, so the basic story, and I, I am a little bit murky on the details, it's been a while, but McKinsey was consulting for Purdue Pharma helping them quote turbocharge their opioid sales and they were like really in the shit they were helping Purdue counter um, media narratives of like mothers of dead children like kids who died of overdoses mm, yeah and McKinsey was like uh, advising them so they were involved like, in the actual marketing of the opiates okay so that's I think they did analysis and I believe bad. it was like <laughs> yeah I think they did analysis where they like looked at which doctors were prescribing and like kind of doubled down on like those, like really just finding people who were like pill mills or something. Okay. I, I, it's been a while since I read about this. So like check, check my facts, but uh, it's, it's pretty horrific stuff. And, and somebody who I knew while working there, he was still at McKinsey when that news broke 
and we were just talking at a party and and he was like i was reading about this and i was just thinking like are, are we the baddies because um, <laughs> it's just really hard to read the details of that story and not feel disgusted um with with the it work. seems hard to not recognize it when you're doing the work yeah. i mean i mean maybe not everyone has the same experience you did because your first job was with rikers and that that's interesting because it seems like you you came out of it actually feeling like you had done something good because um this doesn't really get talked a, a lot about now but the the population of rikers now is much less than it had been 10 years ago 20 years ago yeah the, I think the, the problem now there is that the guards are essentially on strike. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. the the guards have just like turned it into the conditions way worse than they really need to be. Uh, but yeah, I guess just if you want to just describe that that job for Rikers and, and like how how you thought of it as your your first assignment. Yeah. I mean, I came into I think every time I've started a new job, I've had like the most optimistic perspective on the organization that I have at any point it just usually goes downhill from there um and the rikers project i was like cool the goal is to reduce violence in this horrible facility and you know jail complex um and mckinsey had been there for a while and i was just helping manage like projects and like these different initiatives to reduce like weapons and drugs flowing into rikers and like you know all these kind of like just pretty obvious sounding things um i was an intern so i was like learning how to do the job and I mostly felt like my work was just like maybe helpful. I wasn't amazing at it. The, the big thing that McKinsey was um, doing that might have been able to help was changing how they classified people in Rikers. So Rikers had this system, it was like a 25-point scale or something for like predicting how likely somebody was to engage in violence. And then they would like classify like with like. And this system was kind of arbitrary, the one they were using, and it wasn't driven by like actual statistics or empirical reality or whatever. And so McKinsey had some like data scientists who were trying to find a better way of doing this. And this was like where most of the benefit from the project was expected to come from. Um, I, the thing that I was like happiest about doing there was uh, it, it didn't make it into the nation piece, but I had seen as a, a teaching assistant for this like debate program um, at a juvenile facility in upstate New York this program where people had like progressive rewards based on good behavior. Um, and it was like kind of like jails and prisons usually use sticks, not carrots. Um, but I think, uh, sorry. So we're, we're bringing in a consultant. On, We've got uh, a cat on cat Rollins ca- uh, lung issues. Asthma, you said? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah, so basically uh, I did some research and presented on implementing a program like it, like a progressive behavioral rewards program for Rikers. And I just was able to do this and present it to like the person who could make that decision. And I found out after I came back to McKinsey like a year later that it had apparently been implemented across the entire agency. And I have no idea if it like ended up being good for people or not. Like I I didn't really get that level of insight, but it was just like, oh wow, I was a 21 year old and I was able to just like have uh, an idea that like seems pretty obvious. Like maybe we should not just put people in solitary. We should like Mm. maybe give people like, something to aspire to and, and this will like reduce violence. Um, and it just like actually happened. And so I felt like overall pretty good about the project, but then subsequent reporting found um, in, in ProPublica um, found that McKinsey was like basically fudging the numbers for their violence reductions. Uh-huh. Um, so 
as I mentioned, most of the expected um, gains in, in violence reductions were going to happen through the housing and classification changes. Um, and I believe this is in ProPublica. Um, I believe the thing was that they basically looked at like this one facility where they were doing these changes and they kind of put like all the like least violent people in that facility and said, look, our violence dropped by this much. Mm. So if you extrapolate that out to the whole island, we can expect violence to drop by like a similar amount. But, you know, that's just obviously not <laughs> going to work very well. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was it was basically bogus stats. And uh, I believe, yeah, it's subsequently been reported that the Department of Corrections just stopped using McKinsey's classification system entirely. And that was most of the work. And so $30 million has been spent roughly on, on this project by the city. And there's just like very little to show for it. So it was like the one quasi bright spot of my McKinsey experience. And I, I don't feel so good about it now. And you, and you write that you spent uh, exclusively, you almost only talked to um, staff at, yeah. at Rikers. You, uh, did you interact with prisoners at all? Or I mean, yeah, I, I don't believe that McKinsey interviewed any people who are incarcerated mm. at, at Rikers. Um, like there was a, my my team for my last two weeks on the project was behind the gate. So like in the secure area, quote unquote, of, of Rikers and like a guy in a jumpsuit just like popped in to our office and was like, hey, and like, we're like hi. And he just like was like changing out the trash. Like that was like the level <laughs> of interaction that, that you usually had. Um, and I did some like tours of the facility, but um, yeah, the team did not want me to go into the actual housing area because I was like in this like glass bubble control room and I was the youngest person by a lot. I mean, that's crazy that you you didn't. I mean, it's one thing to, to talk to the the inmates, but to not even see what life is like there firsthand yeah. seems like that's going to put you at a big disadvantage. Totally. Have you read uh, the book Captives by Jared Shanahan, who's been on both of our podcasts? No, I haven't. It's a history of Rikers. It's really great. Oh wow. And, um, the story of Rikers is uh, basically the NGOs that had been involved with uh, the the jails before Rikers in New York City. Um, came up with a plan for converting Rikers Island into this new kind of model prison mm. where people come in. Uh, it was a very like, you know, Wagner era, era like late 50s, early 60s idea. Yeah. That people would come in, they would be classified based on what their needs were. They'd be put into different programs, be assigned to different sorts of caseworkers to help them if they had a mental health problem, if they had a drug problem, you know, whatever. And it was a very like on paper, like a very utopian idea for the prison. But yeah. Shanahan makes the case that because the prisons are run by the guards and by a, to a larger extent, the, the broader carceral apparatus of the city, there was really no ability for the, the well-meaning NGO people to really run the prison. Um, and uh, besides that, uh, the NGO people had like their access was dependent on having a good relationship with the guards and the the power structure of uh, you know the warden or whatever yeah. um so they also couldn't really challenge anything or like whistleblow or anything because they knew that they would be out and they wouldn't be able to have like their debate program or, or right. what, what have you wow um so it's it's like a very familiar story um and it makes me think that maybe uh if if we were like blame McKinsey for for some of the results, that's that's sort of missing the point too. Because I think a lot of times the clients are just like looking for McKinsey to take the blame in a way, yeah. right? Yeah, or or they'll come in with like 
a hypothesis and like they'll be like we want to expand into this market or do this thing or like reduce labor costs totally, like how yeah. can we do that and then, so your classic. job is to do what they ask yeah yeah duff mcdonald wrote a book about mckinsey um and he speculated that it might have been the single greatest justifier of layoffs in in, in history wow. just like you come in and uh or like you're a ceo and you like want to reduce headcount by some, some amount but you don't want to just do it yourself so you have mckinsey come in do a bunch of spreadsheets and then recommend, you know, not specific people get fired, but recommend that you like right size, quote unquote, yes. the, the organization. Yes. That's a term that comes up a lot. And yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like the idea is like, there's like a, a, a right size for any org and that number is usually lower than the number of people employed by the place now. And so you reduce headcount, save on labor costs, increase shareholder value, you know, at least temporarily. And then like McKinsey can declare victory. The CEO can kind of be absolved of responsibility for uh, the specific people who were cut or the, you know, the way in which it was done. Um, and blame is kind of just distributed around in such a way that like nobody's really on the hook. Um, I, I did have one thought that came up with a Rikers thing. Um, I t was a teaching assistant with the Cornell prison education program in, in college. And with that, I'm just like sitting in a maximum security prison doing like little discussion groups with with guys incarcerated and like i had such so much more contact and insight with people through this like once a week program for a few hours and like there was a uh an assault on a guard that was reported by the syracuse newspaper and uh there was a lockdown as a result of this and the the guys incarcerated were like explaining that whenever there's a negotiation coming up with the correctional officer union they'll like provoke um like between the union and, and you know management or, or the government, like they'll provoke some kind of violence mm. and and like treat the the people incarcerated really poorly yeah. until one of them like attacks uh, a guard, and then they'll use that to be like, see, we need more wow. money for the hazard we're experiencing or yeah. for this gear or whatever it might be. And it's like, look, you know, may, maybe this is not really what's happening. I don't know, but like that's not the story you're getting in the newspaper. And McKinsey is like day in day out forty really 60 hours a week at Rikers and they're just like not getting anything like this level of insight because they're just not asking those kinds of questions. So it, are there a lot of cases, because it seems like there are many instances where McKinsey is very, very effective at what it's tasked to do. Uh, is this an example? And you think there are more examples of them really not having much of an impact or actually leading to any real efficiency? Yeah. I, yeah. It's really hard to say. Um, I think it would be surprising if McKinsey, like, on average, didn't help clients make more money or yeah. something. Like, I think they've been around for a really long time. They've been the top of the industry for a really long time. And I'm not, like, you know, fully efficient market hypothesis or something. But, mm -hmm. like, it would just be pretty surprising if it was just consistently leading to, like, terrible outcomes from the from a business perspective. Um, I think that a lot of cases, they're, they're just, they have a lot of, data right so like if you have some specific thing it's like we want to figure out like what we should be paying our temporary workers in like the american southwest mckinsey will have like done a bunch of that analysis for other places and so you can get like insight into what your competitors are doing through like anonymized best practices and like this can you know probably help you set prices in such a or wages in such a way that like minimizes your cost but also like gets enough people to work for you or, or whatever it might be um, I think McKinsey also just and other consulting firms have managed to 
corner of the market on a certain type of like smart, hardworking, like business minded person who a lot of these fortune 500 companies just can't really hire this type right. of person anymore. Like they, you know, there's a handful of elite firms that kind of grab like the, the best performing students at the top schools and they pay them so much more and they offer them like really great benefits and perks and like the ability to work with other people who are like also really high performing or something. And if you want to do some project that requires like some level of analysis that like nobody in house can really do, you have to like rent brains essentially mm. from like a place like McKinsey or, or some other consulting firm. And I think that's like a huge part of what makes the business model work for them. Um, and then we also just hear about the really bad cases. Um, yeah. Like in some cases it's like Rikers, they're just like not actually able to get the job done. In other cases, like at ice, um, I think McKinsey might've just helped ice become more efficient at their mission, but like, I don't like their mission. <laughs> um, or in the uh, Purdue pharma case, it's like, yeah, I think they actually did help push opioids to people, but that was like not good for the world either. Yeah. Well, well one of the frames that comes up in, in both your uh, articles in uh, current affairs in the nation is, is this uh, phrase, we don't do policy, uh, which yeah. they say again and again and again, feels like kind of an abdication. Yeah. Uh, wh- wh- what do they mean by that? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, we do execution. We don't do policy. That was like the specific phrase I remember. And uh, this came up in the context of uh, when I was working at ICE, and we can talk more about that as well. Uh, Trump had just become president and he had kind of doubled down on ICE being his like domestic enforcement agency of choice. And he was trying to increase the workforce and like change who ICE could target for deportation. And the people on the ICE project were by and large, like people who marched in the women's march against Trump and like were young progressives. And we were really upset uh, at, at what was happening. So we had this big conference call and this guy, Richard Elder, who's a senior partner uh, managing the ICE relationship. He's now since left McKinsey. And he goes, we, we do execution, we don't do policy. And he gave the example of how uh, when Obamacare was being implemented, a bunch of senior partners at McKinsey disagreed with it as a policy, but mm. they were like serving state governments or something. So they're like, well, it's our duty to just like implement this thing. Um, and yeah, it's just like whatever the policymakers choose to do, like if we're serving that client, we just help them in that mission. Um, and it means that we're not going to like recommend uh, that you know, the New York city government eliminate cash bail or something to reduce violence at Rikers, even though that would like probably do more than anything else, reduce violence at Rikers. <laughs> McKinsey's like never going to recommend that. That's just like not in their remit. Um, and yeah, it is an abdication though. Cause it's like, you're choosing who to work for, yeah. right? Like if you're choosing to work for uh, an agency um, like ice, you're tacitly endorsing the mission of that agency. Right. And you think that like them being more effective will be improving the world or like really they're not even talking in those terms. They're just like, we are helping organizations be more effective because we want to be the best counselors to our clients. Yeah. And it's not even about improving the world really. So McK- McKinsey was involved in the uh, Obamacare rollout. Is uh, it, I think the reason the website fucked up. <laughs> so there's actually a fun little anecdote uh, in my current affairs article, which is McKinsey helped advise, I think on the creation of NASA and this is like back in the 50s and McKinsey's like always been free market ideologues, right? And they're like, at the time they were explicitly arguing to the government, this is kind of funny to say like, we don't do policy, but yeah. they're saying, you know, we should leave everything to the market as much as possible. 
Um, and so we should have like a bare bones government agency with a large contractor state of private sector clients um, doing most of the core functions. And this is how they advise. Yeah, like they kind of helped create the contractor state that like if you know much about how the U.S. federal government works, like so much of it is done by these contractors. Like Edward Snowden was a, a contractor, mm -hmm. I think, with a consulting firm, Booz Allen Hamilton, which is like sort of like McKinsey, but specializes in the government. And, uh, you know, fast forward 60, 70 years um, and they're advising on the Obamacare rollout and they're saying, McKinsey was saying like, hey, we're at risk of this fucking up because we're over-reliant on contractors and we don't have enough in-house capacity at the agencies. Mm. So they were like smart enough to see the problem ahead of time, I think. But um, yeah, just the big picture is that like McKinsey is part of why it is that way. Yeah. There is a line though in the, I know in the, the current affairs piece, it seems like there is a, perhaps a red line. You write that they don't do business with North Korea. Do you have any insight into why that is? Um, I mean, they, they like, yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly why. Um, I would just be speculating. I think that like, there are probably people at McKinsey who would be willing to do that, but it's yeah. probably just seen as like too big of a political risk. North Korea probably just doesn't have very much money uh, to, to okay. pay McKinsey. Um, <laughs> they have since, uh, changed their rules. Like, so they won't do work for, I think what's called like the security sector, in huh. countries that have like below a certain rating on like the economists freedom index or something. Huh. So I think like Saudi Arabia, they won't like work for their like ministry of defense. Um, and I, I, there are other consulting firms uh, I've heard that are working for okay. the Saudi ministry of defense. So like it's possible to be, yeah. to be worse, I guess. I assume they work for the PRC though. Um, I think they've, they've definitely done work for state, um, like companies in China. I don't know if they've explicitly worked for like, um, like the CCP or, or not. Um, okay. but, but yeah, the, they have a lot of business in, in China and okay. that's been like a delicate thing for them to manage. Well, let's get back to the tyrannical United States. <laughs> um, the part in the, the article where you talk about when ice starts contracting and like the sort of pall that came over the company was there's so many, I assume Democrats and liberals working yeah. working for them, um, and then you getting this job. Uh, it it's um, yeah. How, how did you feel, and how did your your colleagues feel when this contract was coming down, and especially the the specific job you were being asked to do? Like, what was what was that like? Yeah. So the ICE contract um, was initially for what's called an organizational transformation, um, which is like looking at the whole big picture, the org chart and like how the whole thing is set up um, and, you know, reforming it in some way to make the org more effective. And so it's kind of like a big HR project. Um, and it was established when Obama was president and McKinsey in their defense for the ice work say like, you know, our contracts were set when Obama was president. We didn't change course when Trump became president. And like the first part is true. The second part is bullshit. Um, and so when I, got the project it was like i think two or three weeks before trump took office it was early january and i had like heard of ice but they were by like far from you know the household name they, they become in the like you know trump abolish ice era um and i was like not super thrilled with the the mission um but i also wanted to do public sector work i thought it would be like i would learn more about how the government actually works and like 
mission oriented organizations were more interesting to me than like profit seeking ones, even if the missions were not ones I could get behind. Um, and I think I also just believed that like Obama had been a, like a competent technocratic, like somewhat humane, uh, president. I didn't know nearly as much as I do now about how he actually conducted his immigration policies. Um, and yeah, so I, I went in like not feeling amazing at it, about it, but like the way it works typically is you get your client assignment on like Thursday or Friday and then you show up at the client on Monday. And so you don't have very much time to like evaluate whether it's something you want to be doing. And this was my second full-time project. And like, you just don't have, you can decline to work on a project for ethical reasons. Um, but when you're new, you kind of just want to like please management. You know, mm -hmm. you don't want to be like the squeaky wheel or something. Um, and so I, I went in and I was working on the like HR side and I was like helping um with a transformation and it was like very removed from like operations and like actual you know deportation and enforcement and like you know ultimately if their hr functions improved um that would help them do their core mission better which i think would not have been good um in retrospect and probably if i knew more at the time also wouldn't have thought um and then it really changed when trump became president like i think within a week of his uh, administration he issued uh, these executive orders that increase the number of deportation officers at ICE by 10,000, um, almost tripling the workforce, and or directed ICE to do this, and also changed these Obama rules where the Obama administration said only deport people with like somewhat serious criminal records or who came within the last two years, um, like target those people for deportation because there's there's something like 11 million people, 12 million people. Uh, most of whom just have been in the States for a long time, have like no criminal record. And like, it's just, you know, I think far worse to just like rip somebody out of their community in that situation. Um, and Trump said everybody functionally was a target for deportation. And uh, so these two things were just like a huge deal at ICE. Everybody was like trying to figure out how to interpret the executive orders and comply with them. Um, and McKinsey, all hands on deck were helping execute on these orders. And so I was tasked with coming up with the hiring models to figure out how to actually hire 10,000 deportation officers. And this, this never actually happened because Congress never gave the funds for it. Thank God. Um, not that ICE needed those things to do atrocities. Um, but yeah, I, I was just like looking at numbers on spreadsheets that I thought would just lead to white nationalists, like people joining Trump's functional just Gestapo. Um, to yeah, deport people who had like basically done nothing wrong in, in my mind. And this, this was just horrific. Um, and I and others were upset about this. And, and we had this meeting with, with Richard Elder and he said, the thing about we just do execution, we don't do policy. Um, and then I asked him in that meeting, I was just like, well, what would have stopped us from procuring barbed wire for concentration camps um, in Nazi Germany? And he said something about McKinsey being a values-based organization. Mm -hmm. um, and McKinsey is very values-based. Uh, but at the time, none of their values said anything about uh, not being evil. <laughs> like, they yeah. were just about, like, don't lie to your clients and, like, don't fudge your expenses. And, <laughs> you know, you have an obligation to dissent when you disagree, but, like, nothing might happen as a result of that. Yeah. Um, and, like, you know, we dissented and, like, you know, nothing, nothing changed um, internally.
Yeah, what happens is you'll, you'll get a different assignment, right? Yeah, so I could have like left um, at any point, I think, um, because I was uncomfortable with the work. But I was just thinking like, all right, I leave. They replace me with somebody who like is joining in the context of like ICE now being like a big news story and a focal point of Trump's white nationalist agenda. So like, what is that person going to do? Like, they're probably going to like be less resistant to the bad things than I would be. And there was some wiggle room, like the, the executive orders were extremely underspecified. So it was like hire 10,000 deportation officers. It didn't say over what timeline. Uh, it didn't say whether to account for attrition or not. And so like we were like coming up with like 18 months, three year, five year plans to do this. And like tripling the workforce of a large organization over like 18 months, it's just like an insane thing to do in general. And then to do it like when you already have the, the least competent and least like ethical federal law enforcement agents add on top of that, like the context of like what Trump is doing to our culture at this time. And I'm just like imagining like a bunch of guys, like a bunch of like meatheads with like guns, like tasked with like deporting Brown people. And like, it just seemed like horrible. Um, and so I was pushing for the longest possible timelines to not count for attrition, just like hire the fewest people over the slowest time. And like, I don't ultimately none of this stuff happened. So it didn't really matter. But like, I'm hopeful that like maybe by, you know, just pushing in these directions, you could have like some positive impact. Um, but yeah, when the project came to the, like the end of my time there, the manager, the partner on the project wanted me to stay on, but my manager was like, this is killing Garrison. He, he can't do this for his like mental health and just like decided for me. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really hard. I, I, I don't know. Like when all these people were like, chosen to be in the Trump administration as um, secretaries or whatever. They were like, well, if I don't do it, somebody else worse will do it. Yeah. But then they just often got corrupted and like kowtowed to Trump and like whatever. I think that happens a lot in, in law enforcement too, where yeah. pe people come into it thinking like, okay, these, you know, ICE is corrupt, the police yeah. are corrupt, but you know, I'm going to be one of the good ones. Yeah. And then they like learn what the culture is and they see that there's kind of only one way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just, it just changes you. And like, I think there are, there are cases where like being on the inside can, can help make outcomes better for, for some people, but like it also, it's just super hard to keep your values and also keep your sanity uh, at the same time. And yeah, you often just like cannot, you don't have the degrees of freedom, you know, like as a low level person, like the whole becoming a prosecutor argument, like being a line prosecutor, you have so little discretion in, in how to, like what sentences to bring or what charges to bring against people. But if you can become like, you know, what Tiffany Kabam was trying to do, yeah. um, like if you're the head prosecutor, you can actually change the whole system. Um, but you shouldn't go in as a line prosecutor and expect to like really be making a positive impact. You should just become a public defender, then run for DA down the line. Sorry, this is like a bit of an aside, but I, I think it's just like this really hard, interesting question. Um, would I would not be surprised if it was McKinsey who designed the voting machines that stole the 2019 DA race from <laughs> Tiffany Caban, by the way. I, I was at that party and I, I was Tame there. at Laboom. Yeah, 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 yeah. I thought she won. Everyone yep. thought she won. It was like just an incredible atmosphere. I'd been volunteering on the campaign and then... Uh, yeah, it's uh, sad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, okay, you get taken off the project. What happens next in your McKinsey career? Yeah, I I just did a bunch of projects for private sector clients. They were pretty boring. Um, but, like, I was just kind of thinking about uh, one of them on the ride over here, and it was like I was – there were two companies that were merging, and we were in what's called a clean room, which is like – 
the companies can't see what the other company is up to before the merger goes through legally. And so McKinsey can come in and be like this neutral-ish party or whatever who like signs some NDAs and like can look at the information from both companies. And it's like the type of thing that like consulting firms are kind of like uniquely situated to do. And we were trying to find cost savings, of course. And like I was looking at different initiatives and like I looked at like temporary labor um, contract work and it's just like spreadsheets of like people getting paid like hourly rates and there's like benchmarks for like the job and the location. And, you know, you can do some modeling and figure out like, hey, like some people are paid like more for the same work in this place. Um, and it seems like you could like bring down their wages to this this amount and like, you know, um, I forget what they call it, like kind of like flatten or just like you know narrow the bands of the wages. And if you do this in enough cases, it like adds up to like millions or tens of millions of dollars in savings. And, you know, it's a type of thing where like you're just looking at numbers in a spreadsheet and, you know, you if you find enough savings, like the, the partner is like, Garrison, he did great. Look, he found all these savings. What have you done? Like literally uh, this is happening. Wow. Like, and I was trying to keep my job. And so I was just like, okay, I, I, I please this guy. And like, he's now like roasting the other analysts for not finding <laughs> enough money. But like thinking about it, it's like, okay, you know, I'm just a fucking 23-year-old, 24-year-old kid looking at numbers in a spreadsheet. Like, I, I'll never set foot in the place where these people are working. I have no idea, really, why they're being paid at different rates. And there might be, like, really good reasons for it. At the very least, like, even if, like, you could flatten all the rates and, like, it won't have any impact on the, the function of the business, it's like you're just taking money from working people to justify some giant merger that, like, probably shouldn't have happened in the first place. Um, yeah. Cause in business school, they teach you something like two thirds of mergers like lose value. Um, so like a lot of these things, it's just like some CEO or executive is trying to prove themselves and like justify their, their exorbitant compensation packages. And they do some big ambitious thing. They bring McKinsey in and they find a bunch of cost savings and it like affects people that they'll never meet. Um, and it's all just abstracted away as like, you know, numbers on a spreadsheet or in a PowerPoint slide. Um, so even the like anodyne kind of like boring basic work of the place is like just kind of brutal if you actually think about it. Right. Now, a lot of people come in, I feel like, um, of our generation and younger, uh, coming into places like McKinsey with uh, kind of a new lens perhaps of, of older generations. And, and this is not, you know, uh, necessarily most of the 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 new crop but a lot of people you know are subscribed to uh effective altruism which which can mean a lot of different things um but uh, primarily this idea that uh the the best thing you can do if you want to change the world just make a ton of money and give it all away but first you got to make the money yeah. um does that uh, was that your your mentality at that point and and do you see that as maybe a generational divide at McKinsey and and are there other people like you or are having qualms about this with with that goal in mind yeah i i mean when i i, I think there is like a generational divide in terms of just like awareness of the impact of these things like yeah. i think people are just like woker now basically about you know once trump got elected i think a lot of people looked at Obama's immigration policies and we're like oh wow this guy actually deported more more people than George Bush and Trump like per year in office and um yeah I, I think like just the younger generation is just more socially aware and um less likely to fall for the kind of bullshit that McKinsey's like um 
I don't know, reputation as like a altruistic or like impact oriented place like rests on. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that works as well. And I think now people come in, yeah, more eyes wide open. And that was one of the goals of like writing this stuff. And, and so I think that's good. I think uh, most people at McKinsey are not motivated by effective altruism. Uh-huh. Most have not heard of it. I, I heard about it like while I was there and I was like looking for, okay. uh, I don't know, just like something else. Like I was just like, this is horrible. I'm like in staying in some fancy hotel doing this work that I think is actively making the world a worse place. And in college I had started a prison reform group and like taught in a prison. I had done all this stuff that I think was like helping people and like having a positive impact. And at the very least, like was just to help people for its own sake, not to make money or advance my career or something like, and now I'm doing my job full time and like, I'm not helping people. I'm not making the world better. In fact, I might be making it worse. And it was in that context that I heard about effective altruism. And like, I think the like donating 10% of your income to like save lives in Africa, like um, that kind of thing is like, Oh, you can just do this right away. Um, and like consulting is like not an amazing thing to do if you're trying to like earn to give, which is like the, the phrase that um, yeah, it was like somewhat more associated with at the time. Um, you know, you could go work in like wall street or uh, at a tech firm Um and I actually presented on effective altruism to people at McKinsey in, in my office with oh, really? some like Penn EA people. And I talked, I, I, I just learned about it. So I had like the zeal of the freshly converted. And I was arguing with all of the people on my teams about it, like why they should donate more mm. of their money. And people were having none of it. <laughs> like They really, I was like naive and I was optimistic and I was like, oh, you know, it's just like using data and evidence to like inform helping others. And McKinsey people are like really data driven and like they'll just be sold on the arguments because they like just kind of make sense <laughs> to this type of like quanti, quanti brain. And then uh, like maybe they like intellectually bought it or whatever, but they were just not willing to change their lifestyle at all. Yeah. And I remember having arguments. I was also like radicalizing to the left at the same time as a result of like the the uh, ICE project and like Chapo and current affairs. And um, which is like a strange thing to like becoming an EA and becoming a leftist at the same time. People think they're inconsistent. I think like they're not actually, but that's like a whole separate conversation. Um, And I remember talking to a teammate on one of my uh, later projects about Medicare for all and how I was in support of it. And he was like, would you give up your like McKinsey health insurance to be on like Medicare? Um, And I'm like, if everyone got it, like obviously, yeah, like, of course I would. Um, and this was like preposterous to him. And it was mm. very much this like, I've got mine. I've got to protect it. I'm going to like yeah. provide a nice life for my my like partner and my kids um, and send them to private schools. And like they can then go work at McKinsey and like repeat the same thing over and over again. And uh, yeah, it's just like people who have just become accustomed to a certain level of material comfort and status and like effective altruism was saying like, no, give away your money. And it was like not high status at all at the time. Yeah. Well, I, I want to, I've got some more questions about effective altruism later, but I've yeah. got a couple more questions about McKinsey first. You mentioned that you got involved in anti-ice activism after leaving McKinsey. Uh, so yeah, what was that shift like? What did you do? And um, I was just curious if you know what, what kind of, what the anti-ice struggle is like today. I feel like I don't hear about it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Great questions. Um, yeah. So as mentioned, like, the, the experience at McKinsey really was just like radicalizing for me. Um, I, I think I was like a social Democrat, like radical liberal or something in college, like really radical on like, you know, um, prison and like drug policy or whatever, but didn't 
know enough about the economics and like just hadn't been exposed to kind of like socialism in, in its modern form. Um, and so, yeah, like post Trump, I was really open to changing my mind. And, and obviously like, yeah, my firsthand experiences at like the front lines of, of Trump's changes in the government just like was a super, uh, radicalizing experience. And so I got involved in, um, DSA in Philadelphia and then in, in New York a bit. Um, I was listening to Chapo and uh, reading, listening to Current Affairs and wrote, wrote this thing for Current Affairs. Um, and a friend of mine uh, invited me to this Never Again action, um, which was like part of like If Not Now. So it was like Jewish um, activists fighting against ICE, kind of consciously invoking comparisons to the Holocaust um, in what was happening to immigrants in the United States. And um, in Elizabeth, New Jersey, uh, I forget what year, I think it was like July of 2019, maybe. Um, I uh, participated in the first one of these actions where we barricaded uh, ourselves across the street and prevented ICE employees from like, or not ICE, uh, it was a deportation center in Elizabeth, New Jersey. We prevented the uh, employees from like driving home. <laughs> and, you know, it was just like a way to get media attention. We, we got arrested. Um, it was like one of 30, 36 people. Um, arrested and, and carted off to a holding area for a few hours. Um, and it was uh, the first of like many actions and it culminated in like, I think like a thousand person action in DC and they like shut down the headquarters that I had worked in um, yeah. in, in DC as like the kind of biggest uh, action within this series and um, got a lot of press. And um, I don't know, it's like, it was like a, a, a small thing to, to do in, in the scale of everything that was happening um but it is something that like i just yeah the more i learned about ice by working there and arguing with people about it the more i became convinced that it provided zero social value yeah. it's just like a, a bad place that it, it didn't exist before 2003 it doesn't need to exist now um and then in terms of where that activism is i i think it like got some bad polling <laughs> like the actual slogan or whatever was like just didn't pull very well. And so a lot of activists sort of dropped it. I guess Trump stopped being president. So people stopped caring as much. Yeah. As if Biden was going to change anything. Right. I mean, maybe he brought back the Obama policies to some extent. Yeah. ICE is, you know, probably better funded now under, under Biden. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it probably just goes up over time yeah. to some degree. Um, no, it, it is true. I, I, I think like the everyday mechanics of the, immigration system in the United States and the deportation system is just, it's horrific um, when you learn about it. And like, if you think it makes sense, you just like don't actually know what's going on. And I think that was true under Obama. That was true. Like Bill Clinton, like his immigration agents were like dumping water out in the desert. So people would like die um, trying to cross the border to like deter people. Like, Ugh. it's just like really horrific. Um, and yeah, I think that like Trump, you know, if he can be said to have done anything good, it was to like just highlight just how horrible mm. this stuff really was and like get people animated against it. And like, I think one of the tragedies of, of Democrats being in office is just like people don't pay attention to this stuff nearly as much. Cause it's like not quite as horrific. It's like not right. meeting the bar to be something you care about now. Another reason I think the anti-ice activism dropped off. Uh, this is from my experience. I participated in one of the, the blockades during that abolish ice moment. And it's probably less well coordinated than the the if not now action you were a part of but maybe had a similar dynamic where you know a group groups of dozens of activists were like effectively blocking this ice facility in the west village mm. and at one point um 
people from an NGO. Wait, that, there's an ice facility in the West Village. Yeah. Wow. I think it's still there. Um, yeah, it was like a non. If if it was the same one, uh, I assume probably it was like a nondescript building mm-hmm. that just had. Yeah, it's on West Houston Street. Yeah. Like, yeah, it was yeah, by right. the the, high, the West Side Highway. <laughs> That's crazy. A yeah. few blocks from the Film Forum, and uh, so uh, yeah, there's like it seemed like a very successful operation like no trucks could get in and out um people were there for days and at some point uh somebody from one of the ngos that was like advocating for the uh detained people came and basically yelled at us like you guys have to stop blocking this building you are making it harder for us to get these people to their hearings Mm. and instead of being seen by judges they're now moving to video conferencing oh wow and uh there's a similar dynamic everywhere where like in the Bay Area, this facility was blocked, and ICE responded by just like closing that facility and moving it to a facility that's farther away, where activists can't really get there. Yeah. And um, I think the the one in New Jersey was a similar story, where it's like it wasn't easy for people to get there. But yeah. So uh, I I think the the difficulty of actually physically challenging those spaces became obvious to a lot of people, and the the like uh, same story with like. Um, people who who want to who are part of the coalition to shut down Rikers, you know, Rikers is very easy to blockade. There's yeah. just like a little there's a bridge going it's an island, there. yeah, three lane bridge, yeah, and you can block that bridge, but then people visiting can't get in and out. You know, people who are being released can't get out, and so it's a very difficult thing to think about actually shutting this facility down through direct action. Yeah, yeah, it, it reminds me of uh, the a few years back there was a a jail in Brooklyn that lost uh, heat and power in the middle of winter. And there was just an organic like uh, protest that kind of like rolling protests that formed outside. And it's like, I think near Red Hook. And so I, I went there and just like horrible uh, situation, right? Like very, very cold inside. People don't have access to like medical care and, and, and like heated food and water. And like people are trying to kill themselves. It's, it's like truly terrible. And I think the way the word got out is like people were like banging on the windows of their of their cells, and like when you would walk around it, people would be like banging in response to you just seeing them, and it led to like this incredible outpouring of support and people there. Um, you had like state senators and members of Congress, and like all these people came, and it, it was really amazing. Um, and it led to like probably a faster resolution to the technical problem. Uh, than would have otherwise happened. I think the the guy in charge of the facility ended up getting a promotion, so you know, no real accountability. Um, but the vast majority of people incarcerated um, in New York are hours from New York City, and like, I think a very large percentage of people incarcerated in New York State prisons are like from the New York metro area. And so, like, if your family um, lives in the city and you're like four hours, five hours upstate with no public transit access, like, and your jail or prison loses heat and power, like, no one's there to, like, hear you pounding on the windows, and it's just, like, really hard to mobilize the kind of response. And all the uh, people who live in those towns work in the prison. Right, exactly, yeah. yeah it's a company town. Um, and, yeah, it's it's just, like, I think one of the less-known things about the, the prison system in, in New York is, like, how consciously these prisons were built far out of people's uh, sight and mind and, like, how this prevents... Um, accountability in, in a lot of these cases we need a mckinsey of the left to solve this problem <laughs> i mean that's an interesting i mean because the abolish ice came from well not I, i'm 
should not say it came from this, but it was uh, arguably popularized by... Definitely popularized by Sean McElroy. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Data for Progress, uh, which is kind of... I mean, he's been excised from it, but yeah. it is still... It's still exists i'm not sure what they do but is that is that possible to have some sort of like data firm not maybe not firm but like an organization of people who are looking at these issues and and thinking about them and strategically uh yeah or is that just kind of doomed to nonprofit industrial industry do that to some extent yeah true i forgot what their group is called people's policy project yeah i believe Yeah. yeah Yeah, no, I, I think there are some like wonky things. I think like Matt Brunig's stuff is a, a good example of this. Um, I think it is, I'm generally in favor of like using evidence-based approaches to try and improve the world. Um, and I think that a lot of like energy in activism goes towards things that like feel good. But like, you know, the example of like blocking traffic and preventing people from reaching their hearings, it's like you just have to know some stuff about the world. Mm-hmm to know like what the expected effects of a given action are. Um, and so, yeah, I think data for progress was like started with like this kind of idea in mind of like, we'll do polling to find out like which progressive priorities are popular advocate for those things. Um, I think that like, yeah, Sean was a big proponent of abolish ice. Um, and then like either as he got closer to power or as abolish ice became perceived as less popular, I think they did some polling on, on the actual like policy idea and the slogan, then it was like really unpopular. And if you're like uh, trying to do popular things and then you find out that like what you think is right is unpopular, you're like, okay, you're either now trying to do an unpopular thing or you're like not going to talk about it anymore. Um, But that's kind of an aside. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I think there are like nonprofits that are doing this kind of work. Like I think that um, there are good nonprofits within like the, the, prison um like like the marshall project does like really interesting reporting uh there's like the prison policy project um i believe is another one but yeah i i don't know it's 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 really tricky because a lot of these things get you know if you're trying to influence these organizations that are like fundamentally reactionary Mm -hmm. um you just often have to like start playing by their rules right um and so like data for progress as an example like as they got closer to power they could be maybe less honest about what policies they thought would like actually help people the most um, and focus more on like what policies could like maybe help people, but also like would win you elections. And like given the way our electoral system works, like if you're trying to take an electoral approach, like that's the game you maybe have to play to some extent. Mm -hmm. And I think there's like interesting arguments about, you know, you can make things more popular by advocating for them. Like Bernie changed like the, the political landscape enormously by like what he advocated for. And if you just listen to like, you know, the popularist kind of approach, like he probably wouldn't have done a lot of that stuff. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a good question. It's a bit above my period. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it has to come from, from trial and error. Like what yeah. you're just talking about with, with direct action, obviously we don't want to direct action has a, a real utility. Uh, just, we have to think through these questions and the only way you're going to realize these things is by, you know, doing it and, having things work, having things not work and yeah. And the, the experience of that as, as organizers. Yeah. Well that, and you know, with the, the group that I was a part of was an anarchist group and they, they just hadn't, not only had they not thought through the consequences of the action, but once the consequences became clear, we had a general assembly where we talked about it and we debated it for quite a while. And we, we came to a consensus to, to uh, keep blocking the facility. Um, and you know, there, there was reasons to, 
keep doing it, reasons not to. But then one of these one of these NGO people came and just yelled at us and like nobody was willing to stand up to them because we just didn't have the confidence to stand by our decision. So everybody yeah. left and the thing fell apart. So besides, yeah, like besides having like this, a wonky policy brain or something like the, I think there just needs to be uh, a, a confident enough group to like be sure that what we're doing is right. And we're going to see it through. And also to like, we, we sort of won for a second, like that facility was, brought to a standstill and no one really had a plan to of what to do once mm. we won and this is i do see this a lot with like younger radical groups like no one expects to win and yeah. so when you do you're like well, uh, <laughs> you caught got, the car like what do you do now yeah exactly yeah uh, i had one more question about mckinsey and then sure. maybe we can talk about effective altruism yeah if sure. you feel like it um you mentioned that there was a a 4chan for mckinsey employees called <laughs> Our beeswax. What yeah. was that like? Was there like huh. McKinsey Pepe's? Um, yeah, it was. It was wild. I I wish I had like known how to archive web pages and taken more screenshots at the time because it was just like this thing that doesn't it doesn't even exist anymore. I don't think. Um, but it was an anonymous forum for people with like a McKinsey dot com email address. So they all had like worked at McKinsey at some point, and it was just kind of you know it was probably biased in the same way that 4chan is biased, right? It was like probably like younger, more male, more reactionary. Um, and I don't know, people just like would argue about the the particular clients that we were working for and like uh, would talk about like, you know, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia as like, I think in the current affairs article, I might even have quoted somebody being like, if you're going to do work in the Middle East, you're going to work for the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. It's like just the price of admission. Like, of course you're going to do this. Um, and there was lots of debates about like the ice work and like it was much more reactionary than like the conversations I was having with people. And so I don't know, I, I mostly chalk that up to like just the selection effect of who's on there. But I also wouldn't be surprised if like a lot of people at McKinsey know how to present as like progressive and woke or whatever, but like, you know, really have some like deep down kind of reactionary views. Oh, I have one more question about McKinsey, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. but, uh, so Mayo Pete, who we talked about, yeah. Uh, the, one of my favorite lines from the, the 2020 election, which was it's, so much of it is the delivery of you looked at a company that was fixing bread prices. Uh, <laughs> what what was that scandal? Do you, do you have insight into that? And, and, and perhaps in, in Pete's involvement? Yeah, I, I honestly don't remember okay. in great detail. I, I think it was something like, um, you know, since McKinsey works for so many different clients, they can kind of like recommend, like, you know, a cartel of companies will like, work together to clue to, you know, fix prices and, and artificially, you know, increase the profitability of yeah. a given market. And I think that was like the nature of the allegation. And he was working for that like client around the same time. It's like, it's possible that he didn't have insight into what was happening. Like I was, you know, Rikers had like tons of teams over many years and like I had tons of teams over many years, like a lot of the work, that you see written about in the publications like the ProPublica and the New York times like happened after I left. Uh Um, And so like, I I don't want to, you know, like say for sure that he was just like lying about that. Um, But I do feel pretty confident that he could have named his clients before McKinsey gave him the okay. Um, And I also remember him when he was asked about McKinsey, he was like defending the organization for a while 
And then it was like David Remnick from the New Yorker interviewing him. And he like pushed him on the opioid stuff and, and Purdue Pharma. And like, he kind of had to be like pushed to like yeah. take a stand and be like, no, what they did there is horrible. And like, you know, it, it was just pretty interesting to see like when he went to work at McKinsey, he probably was thinking about running for office down the line and being president. And he was like, oh, this is a great thing to do. It's like a super prestigious job that will connect me to lots of people. It will signal to other elites that I'm like super smart and hardworking. Um, and he just didn't really predict that like it was going to become maybe a liability for him. Like yeah. who knows how it ended up affecting his you know, candidacy. He like did better than you would expect somebody to do given his prior record. Um, and, you know, maybe McKinsey still ultimately helped him, but it, it was like a big millstone around his neck. And I think, um, yeah, that, that was encouraging to see. Yeah. Cause, cause at the time, and maybe this is a little bit before he worked there probably, but, uh, you had Mitt Romney in 2008 yeah. uh, saying that he would, if elected president, just hire McKinsey yeah. or just make his secretaries former McKinsey people yeah. and just totally McKinseyify the White House. Yeah. Which yeah. is, you know, already the government is pretty in knee deep with McKinsey, but that would have been just a whole new level. Yeah. It, it's pretty amazing because um, Mitt Romney worked for Bain, which is right. one of McKinsey's biggest consult, uh, competitors. And like, in my view, like they're basically just as elite as McKinsey. And it's just kind of like a, I don't know, self-owned or something to like not pick your own. Like he, he named McKinsey because they have better name recognition and brand or whatever mm. at the time. Um, the economist nice sounding name too. Yeah, <laughs> it definitely sounds better than Bane. Bane. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like a literal villain from Batman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the economist also uh, wrote like an unironic thing uh, saying like Obama should repl like replace uh, his the Goldman Sachs people with like McKinsey people um, to respond to the financial crisis and like I think was talking about the Goldman Sachs people as like having done a good job and <laughs> it's just like after the financial crisis happened it's in the current affairs article or something but I'm just like I just really just don't get this <laughs> notes written on the floor words whispered through a door all right, you have been listening to Anders Lee here on the Antifada and and Andy here. I forgot my name for a second. Andy here <laughs> on Pod Damn America. The first episode of And 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 is not over yet. We're gonna go to the other side of the paywall and talk to Garrison more about effective altruism. He is an effective altruist. He is a leftist. Is that possible? We will talk to him about it. You are not going to want to miss this spicy, spicy content. So uh, so if you want to hear it, go to patreon.com slash the Antifada. Or patreon.com slash Or both. You can do both. Yes, if you're truly utilizing the capital that you hold as uh, an individual and you're looking to spread goodness in the world, then you will be a dual subscriber. Effective podcastism. The sun is shining down on millions more, but really